All right, as promised in our first segment, joining us now from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is Jerry Polikoff. Jerry's been a long-time investigative journalist. Currently, uh, Jerry, you're selling TV time? I'm not familiar with your salesmanship, but I am familiar with your investigative journalism, and I think it's pretty good, and I thought uh, you'd be just the guy to come on uh, today's show and talk a little bit about the current goings-on politically. Okay. Now, being that we're a couple of older guys and can remember things like 1972, I thought it would be good for our audience to kind of take a look at what's what happened this Tuesday in New Hampshire, where John Kerry, uh, the front runner, the anointed front runner since Iowa, beat Howard Dean. I think maybe we ought to, at this point, look back at 1992, for starters, at uh, the, the race when Paul Songas beat Bill Clinton. Let's start there. Yeah, it was interesting. The other day, I, uh, I heard... Uh Bruce Hume say on Fox that uh, he's pretty sure that nobody's ever survived, um, <laughs> nobody's ever won the primary or the presidency after uh, finishing third in Iowa. Doesn't seem too long ago. A guy named uh, Bill Clinton finished third in Iowa and finished second in uh, New Hampshire. Well, I was suffering under that misconception that Brit Hume had as well, because I think up until the 90s, my understanding was no one had lost in New Hampshire and then gone on to win the general election. But Bill Clinton proved all these so called experts wrong. That's quite so. One thing I wanted you to bring bring you on, Jerry, to talk about was the sort of reality check that we need to do in, in looking back historically. You and I, I think, have suspicious minds, and, and knowing from what happened in Watergate <laughs> in 1972 that uh, if you're just in picking the candidate that you want to run against in November, you have a vested interest in spending a lot of money to alter events, and that we know from Watergate this happened. And why don't we tell our audience about you know what happened to Ed Muskie? You know, Watergate broke into the news after the election, after uh, Dick Nixon uh, carried, I believe, every state except Massachusetts. Yes. Even though the break-in had happened during the uh, during the campaign, it yes, really indeed. never became news. And Ju- took- June of 72, McGovern tried to make an issue out of it and others, but uh, no one was really paying much attention. The Republicans called it a two-bit burglary. Right. Uh, there was an awful lot of stuff going on in that. As a matter of fact, I, I think I told you, I, I kind of saw a pattern. It seemed that every every candidate that really could have uh, posed a problem to Richard Nixon just kept running into problems with just some of just mischief. I mean, pizzas being delivered to uh, campaign rallies by the, by the hundreds. But there were lots of phony mailings going out to voters that uh, supposedly by the candidates all seemed to mainly be aimed at derailing uh, Ed Muskie. Of course, you know, we later learned about Donald Segretti and the whole uh, uh, committee to re-elect the president. Yeah, there, there basically was an open campaign to uh, get the nomination for uh, McGovern. Signs were there in 72, but they didn't really come out until Watergate. Yeah, Ed, Ed Muskie ran on the vice presidential ticket in 68 under Humphrey. He was the, the, the main senator. It was conceived as, as a pretty middle-of-the-road guy. The Republicans didn't want him to run against them. And there, by the way, was also a very overt campaign by the committee to reelect the president to uh, intimidate TV stations, intimidate the media into, there was uh, deregulation on the table then as there is now. Uh, there was a letter that the committee to reelect the president sent to every advertising agency and every television station in the country, in effect, almost demanding that they give special treatment to Republican uh, campaign ads. 
And that was out there way before Watergate. Didn't get a whole lot of uh, right. attention from the media, but it but, was there. But here it is in Iowa. Uh, Howard Dean gives a speech that I, I've watched it several times. It looks like a, you know, a pretty normal campaign pump people up speech. But somehow the fact that he shrieks at the end and he gets hoarse in the voice is made into some sort of issue. And it made me think of Ed Muskie standing on the steps in the snow back in 1972 getting emotional about this letter that attacks his wife and having a bit of a tear in his eye. And the press turns this into, Ed Muskie is a crybaby. Exactly. I mean, this is the same, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, watched the, I watched it that night, and I didn't actually see it in context that night. In context, this, it seems perfectly normal because there are 3,500 screaming volunteers, and, and, you know, that's enough to arouse passion. It's also enough to make Howard Dean have to yell because he couldn't, uh, he couldn't be heard otherwise. Right. Um, and the tape they showed on television, I mean, first of all, you couldn't really hear the crowd because the microphone they used was right under under his mouth. There's another tape showing it from the crowd, and, you know, you couldn't hear Dean unless he screamed. But uh, it doesn't seem over the top to me. It doesn't seem over the top to a lot of my conservative friends that, that uh, don't particularly have any use for Howard Dean. But the media played it over and over and over and over again. And, and I mean, and it's not like it started there. I mean, we had, uh, in the weeks leading up to the Iowa caucuses. I mean, it seemed like every day, that, I mean, silly little things. I mean, four years ago, Dean uh, attacked the, the caucus process. Well, the caucuses in Iowa are kind of a screwy process. Everybody yeah, I, I didn't until I saw the Iowa, I mean, the Iowa caucus process on uh, C-SPAN. I didn't know what he was talking about. He was right. Well, my uh, understanding is that until Robert Apple of the New York Times thought that the Iowa caucuses deserved more attention, they were just an oddball thing. No one, uh, no one no one talked about it. It yeah. was always New Hampshire. Right. New Hampshire was the first primary. Well, yeah. all, all of a sudden now Iowa was, you know, became a big deal. I think that uh, it was, it's notoriously easy to influence uh, votes in Iowa. Pat Robertson did extremely well in Iowa back in, I think, 88. Took second. By the way, you know, nobody records any votes in Iowa either. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the caucuses get together and they talk about each other and then they phone in some numbers. There's nothing on paper. Yeah. There's nothing on, you know, we know that... that uh, Kucinich and Edwards made a, a backroom deal to try to get you know, right. get a few extra delegates for themselves. I mean, who really knows how the vote turned out in Iowa? Let's, let's raise another question. It seems that spending big bucks to influence a Democratic choice would be a sensible thing if you wanted to pick your opponent. We know this happened in 1972 because Watergate revealed all of these things. But four years ago in the general election, there's a lot of rumors that a lot of money was spent to run nader spots in New Hampshire to try and swing votes away from Al Gore, and apparently it was successful. 22,000 votes went to Nader. That was a net loss to Gore of at least 10 or 11,000. He lost the state by 7,000. In California, uh, a few years back, Gray Davis did the same thing in the Republican primary, wanted to pick Bill Simon. And he succeeded when Richard Reardon probably would have beaten the pants out of him in a, in a general election. Now, what should we look for to raise our suspicions of similar activity in the upcoming campaign? Well, one of the things that was interesting is I saw a statistic a week ago showing the, the distribution of uh, contributions to the, uh, all the candidates in terms of what percentage of them were coming from corporate donors and what percentage of them were coming from individual contributors in the uh, the Dean distribution was something like 70% small yeah. uh, individual contributions, and it was almost exactly the reverse for everybody else, including Kerry. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's, uh, it's probably still pretty easy to conceal uh, where a lot of these uh, 
contributions are coming from, or at least to you know conceal them long enough so that it doesn't become a, a campaign issue. But I mean, I think it's pretty clear that there's a uh, um, there's a feeling in the media and, and in the uh, certainly from the Democratic uh, or the DLC that uh, Dean's an outsider that can't be trusted. Um, I think everybody's afraid of him. I mean, it, it's pretty clear that. I mean, Karl Rove makes a big deal about saying Dean's the guy he wants to face, and, and yet uh, uh, we talked about McGovern. I mean, back in, in 72, it's very clear that uh, uh, McGovern was the guy that they wanted to uh, run against. They never laid a glove on him because of that, and right. laying an awful lot of gloves on Howard Dean. So, right. uh, you know, he thinks the lady doth protest too much. We were talking with investigative journalist Jerry Polikoff. I'm holding a poll in my hands uh, sent to me by uh, Jerry Polikoff, <laughs> which you said last week, which I think we should talk about, about this very subject. Apparently, the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald did two independent polls with different sampling sizes taken in the same time period, 120 to 21, that came up with identical results for Kerry, Dean, Clark, Edwards, and Lieberman. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Rather, you, you know, I mean, anytime you know when you're dealing with a with a two day poll, I mean, first of all, there's so much sampling error that's going to go into that that the chances that that you know any two numbers would look the same are, are you know pretty slim. Just the margin of error would tend to eliminate that possibility. And maybe you know, maybe it's just a coincidence, and they this is what they both came up to with. But uh, both of them had Kerry at 31 percent. Both of them had Dean at 21 percent. Both of them had Clark at 16%. Both of them had uh, Edwards at 11%, and both of them had Lieberman at 4%. For that oh, to have happened... a coincidence. Yeah. I'd have to believe that in Palm Beach County, Florida, that indeed thousands of Jews decided to go out and vote for Pat Buchanan. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, would, I think I'd believe that over this particular poll. Uh, but yes, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of stress on coming up with poll numbers that'll show this or show that. Now... You heard something about the there's an exit poll in New Hampshire on Tuesday. They were asking some questions of people. Uh, what 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 happened? What went down there? Yeah, this uh, this was published today and uh, on the website of the uh, Columbia Journalism Review. Uh, and apparently, it was in Howard Kurtz's column in the or at least on the Washington Post website uh, the day that it happened. Pretty unusual. Uh, and you know, I I don't really. What what did happen? Okay, well I'll uh, I'll, I'll read you what what. It's on the website, and it's one of the ways that you know I'm I, I'm I'm not really convinced that the media routinely um, alter polls or whatever. But there's a lot of ways that you can influence polls, and this certainly looks like one of them. And influence elections, or use polls to influence elections. Okay. There was an AP story today pointing out that uh, 30 percent of the uh, voters in New Hampshire felt that Dean didn't have the temperament to be president. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Of course. thought he did, but here's where that came from. This is from the uh, Columbia Journalism Review. Most of the questions asked in the official exit polls for the New Hampshire primary today are routine. Are you a liberal or conservative, black or white, male or female? And by the way, how did you vote? But then out of nowhere comes this sucker punch. Quote, regardless of how you voted today, do you think Howard Dean has the temperament to serve effectively as president? (laughs) No other question about specific candidates were asked. What's this about? Reading from an official statement to Harry's spokesperson for the National Election Pool, a consortium of ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox, and the Associated Press that administered the poll, told campaign desk 
Campaign Desk is the uh, the site that I'm reading from. Uh-huh. Told Campaign Desk, quote, Dean's temperament has been much discussed throughout the campaign. He fell from a significant lead in New Hampshire. Did questions about his temperament after the Iowa speech contribute to that? The exit poll would be remiss if it didn't try to find out. The spokesperson stressed that because this was an exit poll, it wouldn't affect how New Hampshire's it wouldn't affect New Hampshire's results. She's wrong. The very existence of the question, first reported this afternoon by Howard Kurtz at WashingtonPost.com, could well sway the voters. More important, yeah, what about the South Carolinians, yeah. Missourians, Arizonans, sure. et cetera? You get the point. Sure. Someone comes home. Did you vote today? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, how'd it go? It went pretty well. And they asked me They asked me on the way out, Dale, whether I thought Hardeen had yeah. a temperament to be president. Yeah, really? here's, the, here's the last paragraph in that thing. Simply by tossing the st- that stink bomb into the official exit poll, the networks and the consortium have blatantly inserted themselves as players rather than reporters. Yeah. The Democratic primaries to come. And that's exactly what they did. They certainly did, and and uh, and we were talking, you and I, a few days back about a curious thing that happened when Wesley Clark was being asked questions from Peter Jennings. Michael Moore, of course, has backed uh, Wesley Clark, saying he would, I heard him say this, he came here and spoke at UCD, uh, he said that he would love to see a debate where the general gets to go up against the deserter and talk about military policy. Well, Peter Jennings uh, went after Clark saying, you know, you were there with Michael Moore, and he asked this question, why didn't you correct him? It's reckless and irresponsible, unsupported by the facts, to call George Bush a deserter. And yet, you know, the question is, did was, was George W. Bush absent without leave during his National Guard duty for Texas? And I think the answer clearly is yes. <laughs> You know, actually, the, the Michael Moore uh, sent an email out today defending uh, defending what he said. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. You and I also discussed whether, you know, being AWOL is uh, technically being deserter. And actually, uh, Michael Moore on his website today cites a, uh, a clause in the uh, Code of Military Justice that says if a person is AWOL more than 35 days, they're deserters. Oh, Really? <laughs> I guess he technically was a de- deserter. It's so pretty he, well documented. It's not a story the media has gone after very well. No, uh, but I, the I've Boston been, Globe, yeah. uh, I think, was the first of the mainstream media to go into it four years ago that George Bush basically took time off from his service in the uh, Air National Guard to uh, spend, I think, a year in a political campaign of uh, a friend of his dad's. You know, there's a lot of spin going on that, that uh, Republicans are claiming he made up the time later. That's <laughs> highly debatable, but he's certainly, uh, he's certainly uh-huh. uh, either a year or a year and a half or nine months, whatever it is, he certainly uh, just stopped showing up for uh, reserve meetings. Well, my, my flight instructor, Jerry, who's a, who's a military man, uh, is, he, he, he's a very conservative individual, uh, certainly no wild-eyed liberal, and he's not a Democrat, and he, he said about George Bush's Air, Texas Air National Guard service that if he had done what Bush did, or if I had done what Bush had done, we would have served jail time. Yes, and, you, and by the way, uh, uh, Daniel Inouye said the same thing. That was quoted by uh, Josh Michaels and uh, Josh Marshall in his uh, uh, blog the other day, that uh, Dan Inouye had gotten up and made a speech and said if he had done what George Bush had done, at the very least he would have been court-martialed and spent time in jail. Yeah. It does seem to me that uh, that Wesley Clark and Howard Dean are, uh, to, to my eye, not getting a fair shake in the media, and, and the beneficiaries appear to be uh, John Edwards and John Kerry. Seems that way to me, too. It's interesting that uh, 
the you know you look at the media spin right now it really is like it's all over yeah uh, bill clinton came in third in iowa and he came in uh second in new hampshire and uh that certainly wasn't over yeah and and right now i mean you know going forward first of all you have to realize that uh Dean was really down and out after Iowa, and in the last week he picked up 10 points in the, virtually all the polls in New Hampshire had him uh, in the mid-teens yeah. a week ago, and yeah. uh, climbing to the mid-20s, it, it looks like if it had gone a few days longer, it would have been very different. Right. And meanwhile, he's still got, he's got $30 million in the bank. You wonder how much of that is from the negative, the negative effect of Iowa, the way they covered Kerry. And the exactly. Way they, they I don't think there's any, you know, one of the biggest uh, questions in the en- exit poll was that, uh, something like of people that uh, voted for the person that they thought could most easily beat Bush, Kerry got 60% of that vote. Well, if you look at, at the polls uh, up until two weeks ago, virtually every poll that matched the Democratic field against, uh, against uh, Bush, Dean came out ahead in every single one of them. So there's been a perception uh, created in the past two weeks that Dean can't beat Bush, and I don't think that that's at all true. I mean, Dean is, is he's got a fiscal conservative record. I think Dean has the kind of record that, that is going to be very difficult for Bush to, to run against. He's yeah. going to, you know, it, it, as, as much as, as I may be a liberal or whatever, I think that the campaign strategy is going to be to put Kerry on the defensive on, uh, on some of his liberal votes in his career in the Senate uh, and, and basically put him off stride so he can't attack Bush. Well, I, I heard Dean talk on C-SPAN. I heard Kerry talk on C-SPAN. And I tell you what, I, I think of the two guys, in terms of the charisma factor and just being a straight-talking, sensible guy, I, I think Dean is, struck me as the much stronger candidate. I, I agree. That's really why I'm, I mean, I'm more liberal than Dean is. Yeah. I'm for Dean because I think he can beat Bush. He's a doctor, too. I kind of like that. <laughs> Well, Jerry, it's been it's been good talking to you. I hope that as this uh, this campaign uh, evolves, you'll come back at some point and we'll go through some of this again because you and I can remember stuff back from 72 that I think a lot of people listening just aren't aren't even aware of. They weren't they weren't around then. Well, I'd love to do it again. Okay, well, we shall. Okay. All right. That was investigative journalist Jerry Polakoff coming to us from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You've seen uh, Jerry's articles in national magazines. He's been around a while. We're glad to have him on the show and we hope that we will have him again and uh, you got you've got to like the exit polling for Howard D who did you vote for you're black white you're male female and do you think that Howard Dean has stopped beating his wife now I have to admit uh, I was sent by my producer a uh, a little sound clip that someone did with that speech that uh, Howard Dean gave in Iowa and it's, it's probably worth hearing Michigan, and then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Of course, I would point out, as we did a couple times during the long ramp up to war, that um, the following song by Fear off the Repo Man soundtrack might well serve as the administration's theme song. You know, and uh, I should mention 
before we leave this topic, uh, you know, of course, the headline out of today, former Vermont Governor Howard Dean shook up his faltering bid for the White House, replacing his campaign manager with a longtime associate of former Vice President Al Gore. Apparently, the captain of the Titanic was not available. Yeah, I look forward to seeing pictures of, uh, of Howard Dean in a tank with an oversized helmet. I don't know, folks. I suspect the dirty tricks have actually worked their way into the Dean camp to convince himself he's doing something wrong. It's part of the picture. We should mention that analysts like Tom Curry are asking, how long will Dean fight on after exactly one primary? One primary, which, by the way, shows John Kerry taking away 13 delegates and Howard Dean nine giving him a four-delegate edge after one primary. How many does one need for the nomination? 2,160. Kerry took an edge of four in New Hampshire out of 2,160, and they're asking, should Dean quit? Holy moly. We should mention, by the way, that on last Thursday's show, looking at the international media, we mentioned that David Kay had resigned as weapons inspector, which wasn't getting a lot of press. Well, the next day, he appears on National Public Radio, and by Saturday, the Sacramento Bee runs the following story. Iraq has no WMD, Kay says. Notice the headline doesn't say Iraq had no WMD. The subheadline notes, departing U.S. arms inspector concludes Saddam got rid of them after the 1991 Gulf War. Hello, thank you. We were saying that all along as we ramped up for war. Also lost in the shuffle is the fact that his fellow weapons inspector, Scott Ritter, has admitted that they were in fact spying for the CIA, which is one reason Saddam did kick them out. Anyway, I'm glad it at least made the front page of the B. Departing U.S. arms inspector concludes Saddam got rid of them after 1991 Gulf War, but we still went to war in 2003. This might be as good a time as any to mention that there was a poll by Time CNN Harris Interactive last week that showed that 48% of Americans believe President Bush already had plans to go to war with Iraq before September 11th versus 44% who believe he did not. It seems clear from uh, Paul O'Neill's recent uh, book out on the Bush administration that 10 days into George Bush's term, They were basically greenlighting a change of outlook toward what was going on in Iraq. Now, they weren't planning an invasion 10 days into the Bush administration, but things were changed. And um, we're going to talk about that again in the future. But as we end this segment, I think it might be a good time to to quote from uh, Mr. Al Franken. One thing I liked out of lies and the lying liars who tell them was uh, uh, chapter 29, Uh, his review of the people that got us into the Iraq war and uh, their actual service in the military when they had an opportunity, usually back in the Vietnam era. Let's review some of these, shall we? Franken's favorite, uh, Rush Limbaugh, uh, didn't serve because he said he had a a football knee. Actually, he in fact had a pilonidal cyst, uh, which is a congenital incomplete closure of the neural groove at the back of the spinal cord. It can cause discomfort, Franken notes in the book, but somehow Rush's dad managed to fight World War II with a pilonidal cyst, but, you know, he was part of the greatest generation. Now, we know that uh, George W. Bush served in the National Guard. 
Uh, Vice President Dick Cheney didn't fight in Vietnam because he said at the time he, quote, had other priorities, unquote, which Franken notes, coincidentally, was exactly why he didn't go. Uh, John Ashcroft was apparently teaching. Newt Gingrich was in grad school. Uh, Tom DeLay, the pit bull of the Republican Congress, uh, explained that the reason he didn't serve was there was literally no room in the military for him because so many minority youths had volunteered for the military to escape the ghetto. By the way, Ken Starr got out for psoriasis, New Hampshire Senator Greg Judd got out for acne, and Pat Buchanan had a bad knee, although oddly enough, today he's an avid jogger. Now, I don't want to go too easy on the Democrats. In fact, uh, in, the, in the weeks to come, I'm going to tell... Uh, what I know, which isn't that much, but I know a bit, about uh, John Kerry's background. At least I know what I read in the papers from the International Herald Tribune, an article I saved from 1999 that's certainly worth going into about John Kerry and um, the raid in Vietnam that won him the Congressional Medal of Honor. But we're out of time now, so let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and you're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. (laughs) 